There was an old priest that got tired of many people in his parish who kept confessing to adultery. And so one Sunday in the pulpit, he said while he was preaching, if I hear one more person confess to the sin of adultery, I'm just going to quit. Well, everyone liked him, and they didn't want him to quit, but they apparently didn't want to quit adultery either, and so they came up with a code word. And instead of confessing adultery, they said that they had fallen. And that seemed to satisfy the old priest, and uh, things went along very well until that priest retired. And about a week after the new priest arrived, he visited the mayor of the town, and the mayor was a member of the congregation, and the new priest seemed very concerned. The priest said, you have to do something about the sidewalks in this town, because when people come into the confessional, they keep talking about having fallen. And the mayor started to laugh. He realized that no one had told the new priest about the code word. And before the mayor could explain, the new priest pointed at him and said, I don't know what you're laughing about. Your wife fell three times last week. I know you groan, but you'll tell it later. Well, today we continue a series on the life of David by looking at perhaps the most shameful part of David's life. And as we try to gain a heart for God, we have to look at this subject of dealing with temptation and dealing with sin. And David's sin with Bathsheba helps us to learn how we can deal with temptation and sin in our own life. And all of us deal with temptation. Temptation isn't sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's just the decision-making process that moves us towards sin or away from it. And all of us have been tempted at one time or another, and we've made wise decisions, and we've decided to avoid sin. And all of us have been tempted, and we've made wrong choices and ended up making the choice to sin. Now, when we left the story of David last weekend, Saul's death had been uh, reported to David, and David had gone into mourning and had led the country in mourning, but much has happened since then. David has become king, and he has fought many battles. He fought one of Saul's sons who had been crowned king over part of the kingdom, and that battle lasted seven and a half years. But then David was anointed king of the entire land. And he conquered a town called Jerusalem. And he built a palace there. And he moved his government from Hebron to Jerusalem. And God was blessing David at every turn. He was experiencing victory in the battles. And he was receiving praise from the people and uh, wonderful promises from God. And I'm sure his heart was full of joy. He was successful, and he was popular, and he was respected, and life was really good. But there was also a dark place in David's heart, a place where sin was brewing. And David eventually gives into that dark place of sin in his heart. And looking at his sin, 
can help us to deal with our own sinful hearts. His experience in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 reminds us of three important truths about temptation and sin. First, David's sin reminds us that sin is never sudden. Sin is never sudden. We like to talk about falling into temptation and sin, but it seldom happens that way. Usually, the process of temptation and walking down that road and making choices that lead to sin is a long process. Look at this passage from 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 4. In the spring, at the time when kings go out to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from uncleanness. Then she went back home. Now the first part of this verse is telling us something very significant. It's telling us that David wasn't where he should have been. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. In the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to war, David stayed home. He didn't go with his army as would have been normal and expected. So please note this and write it down. Sin often happens when we aren't where we should be. Sin often happens where we aren't where we should be. We get bored and we look for excitement. It can be the business traveler going down to the bar and socializing with people of the opposite sex. It can be the woman who accepts flattery and attention of a man at work or in the neighborhood and then goes out for what she calls just an innocent cup of coffee. It can be a man who gets on the computer to check email and wanders into porn sites. In many cases, sin starts when we aren't where we should be. David should have been on the battlefield with his army, but instead he's at home. And he gets up from his afternoon nap, which was normal in their culture, and he takes a walk on the roof of his house. And the city of Jerusalem in David's time was built on terraces, and David's palace was up on this, this terrace. But as he's walking on his rooftop, he looks down and he sees Bathsheba, who, who was really beautiful, taking a bath. Is this where temptation began? Probably not. He had probably been dealing with a lustful heart for some time before this. He had probably been struggling before this. And he may have even noticed Bathsheba and her beauty before this. You see, it wasn't a sin when David looked down and saw Bathsheba bathing. That wasn't a sin. The temptation probably increased when he got out his binoculars and really focused in on the situation. And by the way, I don't think Bathsheba was an innocent victim in this either. 
when you live next door to the White House, you know that. You know that. And um, she knew she lived next to the palace. And uh, bathing outside on the palace side of her house in broad daylight is not necessary and probably not normal. And I think she probably knew the king was watching. And yet she didn't cover up. You see, if you read these verses, it seems that this sin happened very quickly, that it was a very quick process, but it wasn't. Sin is never sudden. Look at the steps in this path towards sin. David isn't where he should be. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He watches her bathe for a while. He moves down the path of temptation by trying to find out more about her. He is warned that she is married. He takes another step towards sin by sending for him for her. They have this conversation, and then they decide to sin. His sin was not a quick decision. Most sin isn't. Most people don't wake up one morning and say, Let's see, what am I going to do today? You know, I need to get the oil changed in the car, and I need to buy some salt for the driveway, and while I'm out, I think I'll commit adultery and destroy my family and hurt my wife and destroy my reputation and lose the respect of my children and my friends. You see, our hearts aren't pure at 2 p.m. and filthy at 4 p.m. Sin isn't sudden, especially sexual sin. Ask anyone who has had an affair and they will tell you that the sin was in their head long before it was in their bed. David's sin didn't mean that he hated God. It didn't mean that he had suddenly decided he didn't believe in God or that he hated God. I think he would have told you that he loved God deeply. That God was a huge priority in his life. That he wanted to follow after God fully but he let the temptation that he had flirted with in his head so many times become a sinful place in his heart. And finally, it allowed him to push God aside just for a time. Can push God aside just for a time. And he made the choice to sin. See, David's sin and our life experience reminds us that sin is never sudden. Secondly, David's sin reminds us that hiding is never healthy. Hiding is never healthy. After their sin, Bathsheba goes back home, and we really don't know whether they felt bad about their sin or whether it had continued. We don't know if they swore to never do it again or if they were meeting regularly. If we look at the verses, it would seem that this might have been just a one-night stand because verse 4 tells us that she goes back home, and this is the next thing we read in verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. David gets this message, and when he hears this, he immediately jumps into action to hide his sin. He sends a message to his trusted general, Joab, and he says, Joab, send Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home from the battle. And when Uriah arrived, David tried several ways to hide the sin. His ways might be ways that we try to hide sin also. The first way David tried 
was misdirection. Misdirection. When her husband gets there, David gives the impression that he's called Uriah home so that he can have a report on how things are going in the battle. And so he listens to this report from Uriah. And after he gets the report, the king says a very strange thing for a king to say to a soldier. He says to Uriah, go home and take a bath. Well, he actually says, go home and wash your feet. But it means the same thing. So David tries to send Uriah home to his wife. He assumes that Uriah and his wife will uh, have sex together and that that would make Uriah and everyone else assume that the baby is Uriah's. You see, sometimes we try to hide our sin by misdirection, by half-truths designed to let people come to the wrong conclusions. We work hard sometimes to misdirect people, just to have them assume something that we know isn't true. I mean, we try to rationalize it. We would say that we're not lying, but it's still dishonest. And we've used misdirection to make people think the wrong thing. And trying to hide through misdirection didn't work for David because Uriah didn't go home. Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with the guards who were protecting David. And when David heard this, he called in Uriah and he said, why didn't you go home? And Uriah said, I wasn't going to eat and drink and enjoy time with my wife while the Ark of the Covenant and the army of Israel were camped out on the battlefield. And so David had to try something else. So he asks Uriah, to stay another night. And the second way that he tried to hide his sin was similar, but it was deception. David invited Uriah to dinner, acting like he wanted to socialize, and they ate and they drank and they drank a lot. David got Uriah drunk. He hoped that getting Uriah drunk would make Uriah compromise his convictions, that he would no longer hold to the strength of his convictions and that he would go home and sleep with his wife. And David probably thought, even if he goes home and he doesn't sleep with her, he's so drunk he won't remember whether he did or didn't. And nobody else will know whether he did or didn't. And we can deceive them. But Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Because Uriah didn't go home that night either. He still slept in the entrance of the palace. See, often people lie and scheme to try to cover their sin. And the truth is, most times it doesn't work any better for us than it did for David. The truth eventually comes out. Your secret eventually comes to life. So lastly, David tries extreme measures. Extreme measures. David sends Uriah back, but he sends with him a sealed order for Joab the general. And Uriah delivers this sealed order to General Joab and the order said this, says, Job, I want you to place Uriah in the heat of battle, in the front line of the battlefield, in a place that will be very, very dangerous. And when the battle's at its worst, I want you to withdraw the army. Now, both David and Joab 
knew what was trying to be accomplished here. Joab followed orders, and Uriah was killed. You say, well, Steve, wait. That one's more extreme than what we do. You think most people involved in sin don't kill someone to hide their sin. And you might be right, but I think that it might be closer to the truth than many of us think. I mean, many who are tempted towards sexual sin, and maybe all adulterers, have considered the death of someone at some point. I mean, they daydream about the death of their spouse or the other person's spouse and how things would be different. Or they think, if this lover that I just can't resist could die, I would be out of this situation. Or sometimes they think, maybe everything would just be solved if I died if I was gone. Or unfortunately, most commonly in our culture, when a pregnancy occurs, many think that ending the life of the baby in the womb will be the solution. Or some, when they're in the midst of their sin, they think attacking someone else's character might make themselves look better, that it might justify their sin, and so they... uh, tear apart someone else's character to make themselves look better. And unfortunately, extreme measures are still one of the ways that we try to hide our sin. It can be as simple as having two phones or a secret email account or as complicated as stealing to support a sin habit. But David takes this extreme measure and after Uriah is dead, Look at what David does. 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, verse 27. We'll go through the first part of chapter 12. It says this. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. So he waits for the mourning period to be over. And most think in their culture at that time, the mourning period would have been at least a year. And then after the mourning period, he marries Bathsheba. Now, she had given birth to the child by this time. The child is a a young baby at this time. And understand this, this wasn't a scandal when David married Bathsheba. This wasn't a scandal. People would be assuming that the baby was Uriah's and they would actually be thinking that David was noble, that David was compassionate for marrying this poor war widow. And David had lived with his guilt for over a year. He had apparently buried any noticeable sign of repentance or regret. He probably thought that the thing was finished, that He had gotten away with it. But these verses say very clearly that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It displeased the Lord. And so God sends Nathan to David. Nathan and David are pretty good friends. And when Nathan arrives, he tells David this story. Here's Nathan's story. Nathan says, David, two men lived in a certain town. One of the men was rich and one of the men was poor. 
and the rich man had lots of sheep and lots of cattle. And the poor man had just one little lamb, and the lamb was a pet. I mean, they loved this lamb. They raised it. The kids played with the lamb. Uh, the family hand-fed the lamb, and they held it, and they cuddled with the lamb at night. It slept with them. It was a real pet. Think of your favorite dog, okay? And then Nathan said, the rich man had visitors come visit from out of town, and the rich man wanted to give them a feast. And so instead of killing one of his many animals, the rich man took the poor man's pet lamb, slaughtered it, cooked it, and fed his guests with it. Look how David reacts to Nathan's story. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, how did, David, how did Nathan deliver that last line? How do you think he delivered it? Some picture that he delivered it with fire and brimstone, that uh, pointing angrily at David after David's angry outburst, he said, it's you. You're the man. You're the one. I don't picture it that way. I think he was just quiet for a while after David's angry response to his story. I think Nathan may have had tears in his eyes because he and David were really good friends. I think Nathan may have looked up and made eye contact with David and almost in a whisper said, it's you. You're the man. You did this. Then Nathan went on. He says, David, God is saying to you, I gave you so much, and I would have given you even more. And then let's read verses 10, 9 and 10 and see what else God said to David through Nathan. God said, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Now, let's stop for a second. If you know the rest of the story, try to forget what you know about the story. Try to forget what happens next. What do you think might have been going through David's mind as Nathan begins to turn the tables in the story and identifies David as the culprit? When David realized that Nathan was pointing out his sin with Bathsheba, how do you think David might have reacted? I mean, what was going through his mind? I mean, he had a range of options. Kings at that time didn't have very much accountability for their behavior. David could have done any number of things. David could have commanded Nathan to keep it quiet. 
forbidden him to talk about this ever again anywhere under the threat of death. And we might have expected David to do that. And David could have had Nathan killed right there on the spot. He could have hidden his sin with another deadly cover-up. After all, he had covered it up before. He could do it again. You see, sin has this nasty way of snowballing in our lives, doesn't it? It doesn't just slide into a secret corner and get forgotten about. It has a way of getting bigger and bigger and worse and worse, unless, unless we make the choice not to cover it up. Unless we make the choice not to hide. Unless we realize that hiding is never healthy. Unless we realize that we're only as sick as our secrets. You see, unless we make the choice to confess our sin, to break its power of shame and humiliation in our lives. Well, David could have done one of those things to Nathan, and then the story and a lot of what was to happen later would be very, very different. But instead, David decided to quit hiding which brings us to the last and the most important thing in David's life. And if you haven't gotten anything else, please catch this. The last lesson is David's sin reminds us failure is never final. Failure is never final. Look at what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. David had just said that the man who did this deserved to die. But when he confessed his sin, when he quit hiding his sin, he found forgiveness for his sin and relief from his guilt. And that can be true for you and me also. When we quit hiding our sin, we will find forgiveness. When we quit hiding our sin, we will find a path back to the right relationship with God. We just need, like David, to come clean, to confess our sin, to let God restore us, to let God forgive us. And one of the things I love about the Bible is it's not a book full of perfect people. I love the fact that the Bible shows us that the heroes in the Bible were real people, real people like you and me. It shows us how uh, those real people sometimes made real choices to sin, real choices to walk away from God and do things that God hates. But it also shows us how they fixed it when they fell. It shows us the path that they took back to God. And we know a lot about the process that David used to return to God. Psalm 51 is written by David after the prophet Nathan came to him and confronted him with his sin with Bathsheba. And in that passage, we can find four steps on the path back from sin. Four steps. Let me quickly point out this four-step process to you. Step one is this. Ask for God's mercy. Just ask for God's mercy. Look at what David says in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
David remembers that God is a God of love, that God is a God of compassion. He knows God can forgive him, and he pleads with God for mercy. He wants God to cleanse him, to clean up his life. And whatever our sin, whether your sin is a sexual sin like we've been talking about in this passage, or whether it's something else, gossip, or greed, or anger, or pride or bitterness, a great first step on the path back to God is just to ask for his mercy. Ask God to clean up your heart again and to show you his mercy. Step two is refuse to make excuses. Refuse to make excuses. Look at verses three and four in Psalm 51. David says this, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David didn't make excuses. David didn't try to place blame. He didn't say, well, if Bathsheba would not have been taking a bath right out there in broad daylight, this never would have happened. And he didn't say, well, you don't understand. I had to do what I did to Uriah for the good of the nation." Instead, he just accepted full responsibility for his sin. And too many times, we find ourselves making excuses, trying to rationalize why our sin is okay, trying to rationalize why that sin shouldn't count today in our culture at our time. But David said, God, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. And you would be right to judge me. You would be right to judge me, David said. I've sinned against you and you only, God. Now, of course he had sinned against Bathsheba. Of course he had sinned against Uriah. He wasn't discounting that in this verse. But he understood his primary sin was against the God who loved him. The God who cared for him. You see... His sin had broken God's heart. His sin had broken God's heart. You know, sometimes I think, even when you and I admit our sin, we are more concerned about how our sin hurts someone here in our world than we are concerned about the fact that our sin shattered the heart of God. That our sin breaks God's heart. And David understood that his sin had broken the heart of God. So step two is to refuse to make excuses. Step three is start doing what is right. Start doing what's right. This is a really important step. Look at what David says in verses 10 uh, through 13 of Psalm 51. David says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. What we're seeing in this passage is what the Bible calls repentance. It's not just David saying that he's sorry for his sin. It's David being sorry enough for his sin 
that he's willing to change his behavior. It's David being sorry enough for his sin that he's determined to stop his bad behavior and start doing what's right. He not only wants to get past this sin himself, but he also wants God to use the experience to teach others how to turn back to God, which is exactly what we're doing today as we look at this passage. See, part of this for David and for us Part of repentance is being willing to pay the consequences. For David, one of the consequences of his sin was the death of his child with Bathsheba. The death of a child usually is not a consequence for sin, but in this case it was. And for David, it probably also meant that his private shame would be made public that everybody would know about this hidden sin. And when God forgives us, he doesn't always take away the consequences of sin, just the condemnation. Instead of the consequences, he takes away the condemnation that would separate us from heaven and separate us from him. Can I just say gently, you have not traveled the path back from sin until you become determined to start doing what's right? Let me say it again. Continuing in the sin is a sign that you really haven't traveled the path back to God yet. Lastly, step four is to recommit your heart to God. David says something I find really curious in this passage. He says in verse 16 and 17 this, he says, God, you do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says, God, you don't want sacrifices or I would bring you sacrifices. He says, you don't want burnt offerings or I would bring you burnt offerings. But here's the deal. At the time when David lived, God did want both of those things. God commanded burnt offerings. God commanded sacrifice. And so God did want those things. So what is David saying? Well, he's saying, God, you want more than just a ritual. He's saying, God, you want me to do more than just go through the motions of doing religious things. David knew God wanted his heart, that God wanted a broken, repentant heart from David more than anything else. The path back to God always ends with a broken and repentant heart. The path back to God always has us surrendering our heart again to God. It ends with us having that close relationship because we've recommitted our heart to him. And David had sinned greatly, maybe greater in greater ways than you or I ever will. David had sinned greatly, but the major lesson, the most important lesson from this time of David's life is failure is never final. Failure is never final. When we fail, when David failed, it did not mean God would not use him again. As a matter of fact, a few years later, Bathsheba has another baby. His name was Solomon. One of the wisest and best kings over all of Israel. And 
If you look in Matthew chapter one, you will find there a listing of the ancestors of Jesus. And you know what you will find there? You will find the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the mother of Solomon. Jesus has as an ancestor Bathsheba, whose relationship started with David through sin. That's God's way of saying to you, no matter what your sin, your failure is not final. God can still use you. That's true for us today, just like it was true for him. God is a God of second chances. The God with the broken heart because of your sin and because of my sin is always waiting, always ready to forgive us of our sin and to restore us. No matter how far you've wandered away, there's a path back to God. There's a path back to God. God will forgive you. You just have to return to him. You just have to return to him. Let me pray for you, can I? Heavenly Father, in this room, all of us struggle, Father, because we have sinned. Not just that we have tripped and fallen into sin, but Father, we have chosen to sin. We've made sinful decisions because we've allowed a dark place in our heart to brew sin, just like David did. And Father, we are so sorry that our sin has broken your heart. But Father, we are so thankful that our failure isn't final in your eyes, that through Jesus, you forgave us. You gave to us a second chance. We're so thankful, Father, that when we've confessed our sin to you, when we've trusted Jesus, there's no reason for us to be ashamed or feel guilty about the past sin that we've allowed you to deal with. And so, Father, right now, I pray that you will help each person here find a heart for you today, that they can recommit themselves to you, that they can make the choice to turn away from their sin and turn towards you. Father, I pray that each one of us might find the hope that comes through your second chances. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray all of this in his name. Amen.